Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions and to live more fulfilling lives. Today, our guest is Kaylin Johnson, a healthcare provider, patient advocate, and entrepreneur. She shows high-achieving, neurodivergent, and hypermobile individuals how to unmask their health and feel their best through concierge whole-person care. As a licensed clinical pharmacist, functional medicine specialist, healthcare advocate, and neurodivergent mentor, she bridges the gap between mental and physical health through her professional and personal experience. Kaylin brings a unique and enthusiastic perspective to her private practice, a perspective gained from living life as an LGBTQIA+, ADHD, and autistic individual with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. She cares, coaches, and mentors with passion and an insatiable appetite to help other neurodivergent and hypermobile individuals navigate a world that wasn't built with them in mind. If you're interested in working with Kaylin one-on-one, signing up for her newsletter, or attending one of her free webinars, head over to her website, kaylinjohnson.com. Kaylin is spelled K-A-L-I-N and Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N. We'll include a link to her website in the episode description as well. Kaylin, hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful intro. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being here. So let's yeah. start at the top, as we so often do. When did you first learn about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and what was your path to diagnosis? Yeah, so I first learned about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome shortly after I started my practice. And my practice was originally focused on Um, high-achieving, high-masking, neurodivergent individuals. And pretty quickly, I started noticing that a lot of these individuals were coming to me with certain physical symptoms, in addition to a lot of times just kind of the either mental or kind of um, issues they had in their life feeling unaligned with what they needed to feel their best. And during that time period, I had been diagnosed with ADHD and autism, but knew that there was more to the physical aspect of my kind of health concerns that kind of kept being pushed off into the psych realm, but knew that they were independent of that at times too. So kept doing a lot of my own digging, patients like me, through my research, landed on the link between ADHD and autism and neurodivergence and hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Pulled those articles and immediately, like, I was almost in tears. I was like, this, this is it. This is me. And I sent it to my wonderful uh, primary care physician. And she wrote back immediately. And she was like, Kaylin, like, this is it. This is you. And <laughs> it was like relief, excitement, frustration, joy, every sort of emotion that could come in that moment, every piece of validation. And then also little did I know the the journey that that would take me on after um, in that being really the major part of my practice now. And also just kind of the journey that it really demanded of the advocacy side of my training. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. And it, I guess it never ceases to amaze me how many people in this community get one of these related diagnoses, whether it's ADHD, the hypermobility part, the aut- autism part, and yet there's such a lack of understanding of the connection between all of yeah. those things. And it's, uh, and I relate to what you just said so much, like that moment when you finally learn about what hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos is, especially when you're learning kind of later in life as we have, like it's really indescribable sort of as you're yeah. um, getting at, like there's so much relief and like, okay, this is a thing, like this is real. And, but yeah. also the kind of terror and confusion of like, well, what does this all mean together? And it's, uh-huh. it's just so terrifying and wonderful at the same time time, I guess. Right. And what excited me is when I really started pulling and kind of pouring into the pathophysiology and the biology of what we did know about this, I, for my brain and kind of where it sits in this kind of combination of like medical and behavioral, there was so much of it that actually did make sense to me. And I was so excited. I you know, was definitely, I'm the oldest child of three girls, um, was always hyper independent, like very confident in helping myself. And this was one of the first times that things were happening to my body and I, I couldn't figure it out. And for an autistic brain to not be able to identify the pattern is torture. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I need the puzzle pieces. If I have the puzzle pieces, I know I can figure this out. And that was the piece. And I still, I know my wife remembers that when I got then the book Disjointed, I was reading it and was a few pages in and it was like the whole vision of like who I was, what my body was, what it needed and all these like thousands of patients I had seen before and people in my life and patients I had had um, in my caseload then all of a sudden it made sense. And I told her it was like, I felt like I had my Isaac Newton moment. And I was like, Marnie, close me in for like two years. I think I just like figured it out. I think I just had like a big bang. And like the relief that not only did I just like make sense in the world, but I made sense as far as how I understand the world. So through like biological mechanisms, that was so exciting. Absolutely. And it's such a disjointed, it's such a fantastic resource. And I'm so happy that that's a part of the conversation now because it's such a great (laughs) overview of the systemic manifestations of this. Uh And and, yeah, truly groundbreaking work. And I'm so glad it led to this Isaac Newton moment for you because (laughs) amazing practice out of that discovery. And it's a it's a testament to the incredible quality of that persistence to understand. And I think that's a big piece of this for for many of us that have kind of struggled. And it's it's interesting too, because so many of us have, you know, had these wonky symptoms over the years and researched and, you know, tried to figure them out and somehow not come across hypermobility or Ehlers-Danlos, despite mm-hmm. the kind of extreme Venn diagram overlap of so many of these conditions. And so it's still puzzling to me how you kind of you have to know it's almost like a speakeasy like you have to know the right kind of lingo and you have to know about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos and then it's kind of this 
key to this new world of understanding yourself better. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to a day eventually where not only Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility are household names, but that there's the kind of accurate description of all these things in context to go along with that awareness as well. Exactly. And I think you hit on something there that is actually where I think in, you know, medicine, like speaking from kind of my provider point of view view now rather than patient is in medicine so often I think we we don't teach or accept the art well enough of saying and being able to say to a patient I don't know but I let me try to help you with what Mm -hmm. I do know Mm -hmm. and I find providers who do this work with the hypermobile community or the neurodivergent community like I do, they are ones who are comfortable with a diagnosis and a condition that we are still learning so much about and that the research is really lacking in, but are able to take what they do know and what we did learn, these base building blocks through our schooling to provide help that is helpful for a patient versus I think sometimes, especially with our practice being, you know, our medical system being so siloed and so subspecialtied that it does so much direct harm to patients who experience multi-system mm-hmm. disease states. And that is hard though, when those providers have been, you know, trained in this mindset of like, no, we follow this algorithm. The algorithm Mm -hmm. is the answer. And there's a discomfort that of saying, here's a diagnosis where I don't have a great algorithm. And I'm going to have to look at a patient and say, I don't know. And then we just get into really, I think the behavioral part of as people, that that's something that we we struggle with and that the medical community, I think, needs to really take a a, a deep look at for sure. Absolutely. And that just, uh, I also, when I hear a provider say, I don't know, It's so relieving to me. Like we Mm -hmm. talk a lot about the red flags for doctors in this space. And to me, like saying, I don't know, is like a green flag. Like it's like, okay, this person, you know, isn't just kind of resorting to this kind of whatever it is, ego state or the algorithms know all kind of faith in, in that part of the system. But like you said, beyond that, like the I don't know is reassuring in itself. But when someone is actually willing to sit with that uncertainty and assess the person that's in front of them and have an open mind and try different things and look at related research or think about related conditions that they've seen and get creative, that's like the ultimate goal. And that's like the ultimate win as a patient to find someone who's willing to, to do that. And it's And yet it's so hard to find... And that's why it seems like your practice is filling this really critical gap between the system that's not set up to allow providers the time to either get creative or take a step back and look at the systemic, the whole person, basically, as you said. And so I just think it's fantastic that you've sort of taken all of this personal experience and really put it together and applied it in a way, you know, to help people who are going through very similar things to what you've experienced. It's really wonderful. I appreciate that. And it was one of those things too, that like, 
you know, coming out of it, I would never tell or say to anyone that I uh, to be, you know, thankful for the the hardships or the trauma or that I'm, you know, grateful that necessarily that I went through some of the experiences that I did that got me here, but also experiencing the difficulties that I had in being diagnosed with ADHD, autism, and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I was working in academia at the time, and I taught students specifically around interprofessional communication and around patient advocacy and chronic disease. And here I am sitting in front of providers knowing how a patient is supposed to quote, supposed to like communicate this and I'm not being listened to and I'm not being heard Mm -hmm. and I am being medicated in ways that I did not agree with, but I was so beat down that I had pretty much given up. And I share this example with my patients and I'll share this with your listeners as well, just so they know again that like I'm a pharmacist and was a professor uh, at the time. And I had a neurologist um, ask me if I could be doing this for attention in regards to my dystonic uh, symptoms that I was having. And I was in shock. I could not believe that this was the experience then that patients were having. And it was, I hate saying that it was like, I, I, I knew I had to do this work, but also that autistic justice part of me was like, no, I have to do this work. And I am unique in that I had the kind of education Mm -hmm. background to be able to kind of specialize in working not with a specific disease state even or organ system, but in a specific type of patient and a patient who is chronically ill in a quote, unexplainable quote for sure way, and just wants to be able to live a life that fits them whatever that means biologically, neurologically on the daily, and just to be believed, like, and to have your internal experience is never wrong. It never is, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. And there's so much in there. I, I really resonated with what you said. It's, it's such a persistent problem in this community of people being accused of doing things for attention and it's just, it, it never kind of ceases to, to amaze me. That's kind of the go-to after sort of the most basic things have been ruled out. Because in my experience, the vast majority of people that I know, and this is definitely true in the hypermobile community too, will do everything they can to avoid g- going to get <laughs> medical treatment because uh-huh. it's unpleasant and, you know, the fluorescent lights, the being in a cold gown. I mean, there's so much kind of vulnerability and it's a quick pace Uh and it's just very unnerving and not a pleasant experience, you know, most of the time, Uh even in the best circumstances. And so this, like this idea that, you know, patients are attention seeking, it's not at all consistent with my experience or what I've seen. And and just like, what a thing to to say to someone who's going through Uh these neurological symptoms. And I related to what you said, too, about being a professional and thinking like, you know, my gosh, if someone like me with all with my education Uh and experience is being treated this way, how is everyone else being treated with this? And I I just admire you so much for kind of Uh channeling that energy and being able to pull yourself out of that angst in that place of giving up because 
I think that's something a lot of us relate to too. It can be very defeating to have mm-hmm. multiple people just shrug or, you know, run the basic tests that we know a lot of mm-hmm. sort of basic first line tests don't show very much for a lot of patients. And for people to come back and say, oh, well, this test came back as normal, therefore, there's no problem. And how yeah. psychologically defeating that can be when you know something is going wrong when you're looking at your peers and you're like, okay, well, I can't keep up physically or, you know, why are my joints popping out all the time? And why am I getting dizzy when I'm upright or, you know, having reactions or whatever it may be? It's, it's just such a sad state of affairs. And, you know, and I, not to, you know, providers too much. I mean, there are, Mm -hmm. that's a spectrum too. There's wonderful, for sure. There's people who've checked out a long time ago and kind of everywhere in between. But this model where most providers have about 15 minutes to mm-hmm. sit with the patient, I look at that from you know my law training background and I say, there's basically no legal question I can answer for you unless it's like, should I commit this crime? You know, that I can answer mm-hmm. 15 minutes. And so when it comes to the sort of infinite complexities of the body and the extraordinary lack of research into, you know, some specific areas like hypermobility, there's just, there can be so much kind of hubris in the face of that uncertainty. And it just feels awful as a patient being on the receiving end of that, for sure. Exactly. And that model, I mean, really doesn't make sense in so many ways, but only makes sense, possibly, if you are dealing with a, again, siloed very specific issue. And truly, from at least my work, I feel like we've been approaching, you know, so much that way, like you're like, okay, there's this, you have hypertension. So you you go maybe to your cardiologist, you go to your primary care physician, and we treat the hypertension. Okay, but why is the hypertension there? And I'm also not meaning just why is the hypertension there related to where in our society that's all then been put on the individual regarding possibly weight or li- lifestyle, mm-hmm. the the connections of truly what is patients' values, their lived experience, their unique biology and neurology, and how all of those things tie in we are just constantly like doing a disservice to patients by continuing to silo care. And that's like exactly what you said, the model supports that. And that's where I will say too, that while things are better for sure for me in understanding my diagnosis, the reality though is it is still difficult. It is still Mm -hmm. draining to go to providers and terrifying. And I'm a provider myself. I am terrified when I go to a new provider and I'm like, are they going to listen to me? Are they going to respond like that neurologist did? Thank Mm -hmm. you. Trauma now Mm -hmm. from that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And, or the other pieces, you know, like I teach patients how to be able to advocate for themselves, but I always am really honest in that this is a band-aid for the current issue. And the Mm -hmm. fact that I even have to ask you and teach you to be able to do this. Like I had a provider I went to recently who was like, oh, this is so wonderful. You do this for your job. You can teach me about this. And I was like, yeah, that's great. But I came here as a patient. Mm -hmm. And so now all of a sudden I'm put out 
on this piece where I'm actually here to also educate and I'm here in this vulnerable space and I'm exhausted and I'm symptomatic. And now all of a sudden you just heaped these expectations Mm -hmm. on me because I'm your best answer. And that happens to so many of us then and my patients too. We're expected to be our own doctors on the daily. And that's what we really ask patients with chronic disease to do. And that is completely insane. (laughs) Absolutely. And that reminds me of, I think it's so great that you teach patients how to be their advocates or coach them, work with them on that while being clear that this is a bandaid and this should not be the way that it is. And Mm -hmm. um, shout out to Hype Access for doing great advocacy on that issue too, because I think that's so important because a lot of times you're just hearing or there's this message that's out there in the chronic disease community. You have to be your own advocate. And it's (laughs) those expectations because, you know, the vast majority of people in this community are not trained in these topics and have to kind of get up to speed. And it's like as if we're not dealing with enough besides having to be the kind of voice of the community in those moments where we're not expecting to like it's one thing when you yeah. kind of prepare and you you know ha- have time to do it on your own terms and what you said is also such a great testament to the power of language and how we treat people <laughs> and that provider saying like this is great now you can teach me about that like and it's maybe it's the lawyer in me or you know the sort of mm-hmm. but i think like what a difference it would make to tweak that language a little bit and say that's wonderful what you do. Would you mind educating me a little bit on that? Or, you know, could we set up a time uh-huh. to talk so I could learn more from you? And putting uh-huh. it in terms of a question and allowing that person the agency instead of like, oh, great, now you teach me now person, you know, it's like, yes, just that little bit of like, respect, frankly, and yeah, how we, you know, interact goes such a long way. And yeah, you're so right that this should not be falling on individual patients to advocate, but it's a mm-hmm. sad state of affairs where someone who's, who is saying that and is at least curious about learning is still heading mm-hmm. above most providers. So <laughs> we're really, really in it, I guess. That's exactly. Well, and it kind of even goes though to even back to where we were talking about providers that can say, I don't know. I find for myself to really find peace both in my body, my mind, and then the experience of trying to care for myself or seek care for myself, that it is allowing and calling out and really looking at and spending time with both realities in that that provider is a wonderful provider. And I am grateful for that provider and grateful that they are, you know, we're willing to listen Mm -hmm. and to want to understand. But I can also hold the other reality at the same time that that is a huge weight on me, Mm -hmm. that that causes, you know, for sure, a lot of feelings um, of overwhelm of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I also have ADHD and autism. So if the other person is neurotypical. A lot of times I struggle with communicating in a way they understand. And so Mm -hmm. I'm all of a sudden concerned about, am I explaining this well? And I'm, Mm -hmm. again, all of this, I think, comes back to spaces where we are going to feel most aligned in any way are going to be with people and places and things where two realities can exist simultaneously, that we are both very well and very unwell. 
that we can be both very like amazing communicators and then at times terrible communicators when we're experiencing maybe brain fog Mm -hmm. or dysautonomia symptoms that like we are, I always, um, our life experience is truly a series of pendulums. Or I think about like rocking pirate ships at like amusement parks, which would always make me puke. And so that maybe is a sign, but um, (laughs) that I think of all these different aspects of myself, you know, the dysautonomia, GI dysmotility, the hypermobility, autoimmunity, um, all of these pieces, they're all like their individual rocking pirate ships. And when one starts rocking like big, like they do, it may hit one of the other ones and then that one starts rocking mm-hmm. and that hits one of the other ones and then that one starts rocking. And as soon as you try to slow one down, then the other, you got to go and try to slow the other one down. Mm-hmm. But we have to acknowledge that they are all there at the same time. And that's really how you both respect and treat a hypermobile individual. Absolutely. So well said. And we touched on it a moment ago, but you were trained as a clinical pharmacist and worked in that field before transitioning to health coaching and patient advocacy. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that career transition and how your previous work um, now informs your current advocacy practice? Yes, very much so. So yeah, I get this question a lot. And So the way I always viewed pharmacy and my role as a pharmacist and what I loved about it was I was always fascinated by anything that changed our biology or affected our pathophysiology. And a medication is just one of those things. But to me, things like stress management or body positions or movement or anything, any variable we can alter, can alter our biology. And no more is that true than in the hypermobile patient. So to me, it's funny, I always actually feel like I very much am still like using my pharmacist brain. I just use it from a perspective that maybe people weren't thinking it would have applied to. So for me, in my brain, it was kind of a natural progression. And I am also an upstream thinker. So when I was an ambulatory care pharmacist and I was a, uh, worked in academia and taught in school of pharmacy, I became really frustrated working with patients in that career because I was so restricted in how I helped them and it wasn't what they needed. And I could see what they needed. They needed help finding relief and comfort whatever that meant to them. And they weren't going to be adherent like with their medication until someone could help them with that. And their lives were hard, but that challenge didn't scare me. It actually really excited me. It was like ultimate like Tetris, right? And it's like that full picture upstream and individualized approach. And that was always what attracted me to chronic disease. That was my specialty. And it was actually um, diabetes. And I was involved in doing diabetes education in the hospital and in outpatient. And I always remember this one patient that they had me call on to check to see if she was being adherent with her new insulin regimen. And she had had um, both legs amputated because of complications from diabetes. 
And I called her and I was like fresh out of school too. And I was like, yeah, okay, like I'm gonna, this is gonna be a great call. I'm gonna, gonna, you know, help this patient out. And I was talking to her, asking her how she was doing after the surgery and her medications. And all she could say was, "I, I need my butt pad. I just need my butt pad. Like she was having to sit all the time now and was uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, okay, my goal is to help this woman be adherent with her medication to be well. But there are so many obstacles coming up before I can even, and she's also like in shock, I, you know, of what happened. Mm-hmm. There's so many pieces to this spider web and I'm supposed to just kind of sit here and silo and then throw my hands up in the air like there's nothing I can do that didn't make sense to me. (laughs) And so I knew I needed more education in a more holistic perspective if my end goal was to provide help that was helpful to a patient. Absolutely. It's so great, that concept of upstream thinking. And so much more of that is needed in this space because, you know, like we've talked about, there is so much siloing because of the sort of systemic and structural issues with the healthcare system that providers are focused on their little piece that they're not, not to say little, that it's, you know, <laughs> but they're, yeah. they're part of the whole that they're looking at. And yet we all know that in our real lives, there are these major kind of intervening things that can prevent being able to get to those specifics that also need to be addressed. And so I, I just think it's great that you've kind of realized these systemic challenges and used your your personal skills and gifts to kind of take a step back and look at how you can be helpful to people that are struggling and leaning into that challenge instead of so many, and I can understand why, but so many are Mm -hmm. kind of put off by that, like you said, kind of default back into their training of like, okay, I'm going to stay in this silo, but being able to, to just see, see patients as people first and be able to work with a person on the level that they're, they're currently at. I mean, that's just kind of everything in this context. Yeah. Well, and truthfully, if I could go down to and say, like, what do I think is needed in healthcare? And what do I think is needed to help to best help the hypermobile patient? It is, it is a whole new, really, I think, specialty of a practitioner who can spend the time necessary and to really look full picture at patients with chronic multi-system diseases. And I think that's what's missing. And I think there are those of us, and I'm I've met for sure a lot of colleagues in healthcare who found themselves in these different kind of niches and they're like, this doesn't make sense to me. Kind of I don't like, I don't want to practice in this way. I had somebody Um, come to me recently, somebody who just graduated medical school. And she was like, I want to do what you're doing. I didn't know that was a thing. And I was like, well, I mean, it is and it isn't. It's just a way of looking at a patient. And I think we've put all that weight on primary care physicians, but they are not equipped with the time or really the ability to, to do that and to be a master then of caring for a person with chronic concerns. So I think that's just truly a whole new kind of area of provider and practice that really needs to be integrated. Definitely. And you're trailblazing way and I'm so happy <laughs> to see it because 
Yeah. Definitely all all hypermobile patients need and deserve a kind of a a team or sort of a a point mm-hmm. person at least that can help guide them through this maze because as we've talked about it's mm-hmm. so much to take on oneself. Yeah. And if you have the background or the education or what whatever kind of you're coming to the table with, it's still just way more than any one person can can be responsible for. Exactly. And again, like finding the providers then who are comfortable with kind of doing your best to hold all of the pieces. I always tell my patients that I see them like like a bunch of necklaces and we threw them all in a suitcase and we traveled to Switzerland and we got there and they were all tangled up in some giant ball mess. And when you go to a specialist, it's like they're tugging on one of the necklaces and maybe it loosens up a little bit, But in the end, that ball in the center just gets tighter. Mm -hmm. And what my goal is and my approach is I'm looking at that whole ball of necklaces and I'm slowly, patiently taking the time to undo them and to see how they impact and touch each other and untangle them. So then we can look at them all there and say, okay, here's what we have, and then be able to put them back away nicely together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love the metaphors you come up with with these things. It's so hard to explain <laughs> these phenomena. And so putting them in clear terms is so helpful. And yeah, well, one of your other areas of specialization and interest is neurodivergent healthcare and wellness. Mm-hmm. Can you first tell us a little bit about what neurodivergency is? So we're all on the same page here. And then why this is an area of such importance in, in your practice? Yeah. So neurodivergency, you know, you'll find different definitions throughout time um, for this term. It was originally really utilized by the autistic community um, in the 90s, but more recently it's really been adopted to really mean a mind that functions in a way that doesn't fit into neuronormative standards. So it's really an overarching term that really is there for anyone who's functioning is maybe labeled different from the norm. So that can be ADHD and autism, but doesn't only include those. That's just what I specialize working in with most because that's also my own personal experience, but it also can include PTSD, OCD, bipolar, dyslexia, sensory processing disorders, and knowing too that the norm really is not a true norm, but it's rather, you know, a societally defined one, but it's just a way to kind of help people self-identify why maybe they feel or experience the world different from those around them. Definitely. And and I'm glad you said there's no true normal defined because that's part of what I always think about in this context. It's like, okay, well, who's the baseline that we're all being measured against? Because uh-huh. every person I've ever met has their own perspective on the world and their own way of thinking. And mm-hmm. no one is exactly alike, let alone, I guess, what you know, whatever this concept of, you know, normalcy or baseline or whatever we're measuring, you know, this against. Yeah. It's a very, you know, learning more about these kind of different ways of thinking and, and looking at the world has definitely opened up kind of a, a new world for me in understanding these things. And I remember when I first read the diagnostic criteria for autism, my first reaction was, 
so is everybody autistic then? Like, <laughs> then, like they're very, very broad. And even like thinking about ADHD, I once saw a provider lecturing on ADHD and he was saying, ADHD is like when you look out the window and see a squirrel and you look at the squirrel a little too long. And I'm like, well, oh what is gosh. the norm? What is the appropriate amount of time to look at a squirrel? Like, does it matter if the squirrel is like bright purple? Like what if he's fallen in paint or what if he's like got yeah. something interesting in his mouth or he's frantically, you know, jumping off, you know, like does, does any yeah. of this matter? And I thought like well, what a weird way of uh, <laughs> defining it. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. You hit on something so huge that I think we just continue maybe to be, I think sometimes shocked by as a society, like how deep our implicit biases go and truly in the fact that the diagnostic criteria for ADHD and autism, and I would could would argue for hypermobility, that they are all based on the subjective experience of the people who are interacting with those individuals. Mm. They are not based on the subjective experience of the individual themselves. Mm -hmm. And that is where there has been so much disconnect then and misunderstanding between patient and provider, because so much of that, you know, we talk about like, you know, the history of anthropology and even sociology, where back in the day, it was all written about how a colonizer would come in and write about the perspective of what they saw a group of people doing. And that's how we would kind of label then the anthropological reality of mm-hmm. what this group of people was. But is that true? Or is that just, again, the perspective of that person who also has their own unique perspective mm-hmm. and reality of their biases? So again, I think that's where, because even a lot of what you just spoke to, a lot of the ADHD and autistic community right away, those are huge like red flags of like, we're not understood. Like that's not our experience and that doesn't adequately describe it. And it just goes to show, I think in all of these diagnoses, which also happen to be uh, commonly Mm co-occurring, the research and diagnostic criteria are really so behind at actually even including what our experiences truly are, which is why then we end up gaslighting ourselves and wondering, (laughs) is this really us? Mm -hmm. Because like, I don't know, I kind of need it. I kind of don't. But the thing is, it's not even accurate for who, you know, most of us are in our unique qualities. Such a great point. And it's, it's a really difficult position that, you know, many of us in the hypermobility and these other communities that we just, you know, touched on neurodivergency, that it's a difficult state of affairs, but it, it does give me so much hope to see people like you um, who are living with these experiences, working to disentangle the necklaces, to borrow your metaphor <laughs> for a moment, a part of the conversation, because, you know, there are so many great providers who, you know, have compassion and can understand the experiences of others, but there really is no substitute for living with these conditions. And at the very least, yes. people with these conditions really need to be a part of the conversation about what these conditions are, and then what are the kind of paths of least resistance or the the most safe paths forward to actually addressing them. Exactly. And that was also for myself. I know that even truly, like, I'm pretty sure my therapist, my psychiatrist, even for a while with my own kind of 
traumas going through this diagnostic process were kind of like, well, why would you, you know, want to practice with this population that being possibly triggering for you? And that was never a question for me because I think there was always a discomfort for myself in maybe practicing with patients with disease states that I didn't have a firsthand experience. And I only had a book experience for, because I think I always understood that a provider can never claim to understand a disease better than a patient who's experiencing it. They may understand the pathophysiology, but to ignore the patient's experience in front of you is dangerous, straight up. And there was so much about my own experience that even things that I'd learned in school, and then I felt it and I was like, oh, okay, that's what that feels like. I would have now all of a sudden I have brand new language and an ability to relate to a patient that I never would have had if I wouldn't have had that experience. So I see myself then, I guess, as a neurodivergent, biodivergent and medical trauma translator (laughs) of sorts. Absolutely. Well, Um, I think that's a great place to pause this part one of our talk and pick up on the rest because we have so many other great topics to address. But thank you so much, Kaylin Johnson, for joining us today. Again, we'll include the link to to your site for people out there looking to explore more. And yeah, looking forward to talking to you again further in the future. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. I could talk about this stuff for days and days. And yes, uh, if anybody is looking for help or support in this area, um, you know where to find me. Sounds good. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks for joining us today. And as always, feel free to reach out at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.